All right. Uh, as usual, we've got our um, packet of information here, uh, the worksheet that we'll be filling out, but then uh, also um, the scripture passages that are listed there. Um, we'll be not only going through this, but we'll be reading quite a bit of the scripture, probably not all, uh, just because there, there, there are quite a bit, um, but we'll be looking at as much as we can. Um, keep in mind that, that, you know, most of what we're doing or we're trying to do is not just um, academic, and it's not really just trying to sh- strain gnats or, like, kind of pick through all the little finer points or, um, or really, you know, blow our minds or, you know, twist them in a knot or anything like that. More than anything, uh, it's helpful to understand not just particular passages of Scripture, but how Scripture puts together salvation across all of its pages. Remember, that, that's what we're trying to do more than anything. We can go to any particular passage at any given moment, and we can isolate those passages and look at those passages and say, see, this says this about salvation. We don't want to do that. Um, and so what we want to do instead is say, well, this says it this way, and this says it this way. How can both of these things be true at the same time? And so we're going to be looking a little bit at that tonight. Um, as we get into um, some of the more, uh, perhaps a little bit more of the uh, heady kind of stuff, but then also bringing it back to the practical to answer Millie's question from last week. I haven't forgotten. That's on the back half of, the, of tonight, so we're hopefully going to deal with all of that. So let's remember that uh, what we've said so far, if we can kind of trace the argument that has been made that we've seen unfolded in Scripture, is that we are condemned from birth, and not simply because we choose a sin. Um, it, you're not condemned before God s- simply because you stole that candy bar from Target when you were a child. You're, you're condemned long before that because you're included in Adam. And that's the argument that the Bible is making, is all of humanity is poison. Uh, humanity is a, a bit like a, a, a piece of meat. You know, once a little bit of it's spoiled, you can't just cut off Adam and separate him off from the whole lump of meat. The whole thing has been spoiled, and it's got to be thrown out. And so, uh, essentially, we are guilty long before we're ever born. Thus, the reason death is in the world. That is the Bible's explanation for why death is here, is that it is a supernatural consequence for sin against God, period. So anytime we see death, anytime we ever experience death, It should be a reminder, this is a supernatural consequence for sin. Now, the person that died may not have died as a result of their sin, right? That's not what we're saying. But as a result of sin, death is in the world. And it's it's a supernatural consequence. And so that is given to humanity simply for being man. And so what happens then is there is a, a requirement placed on mankind and, and it's a job, a task, given to them before sin ever entered the world. Adam is told, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Before he even creates man, he says, let us make man in our image. And let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every creeping thing that crawls, over everything. Mankind is to have dominion over the earth. And what we understand that dominion to be is not just simply uh, training dogs to sit. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. The kind of dominion that is in view there is the kind of dominion that takes the glory of God, uh, the worship of God, and spreads it 
to everyone else. So Adam and Eve are given this task of as they are fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, they are to take the next generation and show them how to bend the knee to God who is king. And as his vice regents, exercise his authority over the earth, right? That's their job. But instead they sinned. But mankind is still given that task. Mankind still has to fulfill that role. Well, what we find in Christ is that not only can we not do that, we find that throughout the Old Testament, no matter who comes in, no matter how righteous they are, no matter how awesome, we're going to see this in David coming up in Samuel as we go through Samuel, no matter how fantastic all these men are that come along and how much promise they show, they can't do it. Failure after failure after failure. But mankind is still given this task. They have to do it. And so, who comes along but Jesus, and he actually accomplishes the task. But in order to accomplish the task, he first of all had to be fully man, right? Because a man had to fulfill that role. But because man couldn't, he also had to be fully God so that he could actually accomplish the, ro- the task given to him. So, Jesus is uniquely suited to fulfill that role of being the new Adam, the one suited to do that. And now, anyone, we're all, because we're, we're born of man and woman, we're born of flesh, we all fall under Adam's lineage. We're all children of Adam. All right, But, by faith, through the regeneration of the Spirit, we are also actually children of Christ. If indeed the Spirit has given us new life, has uh, allowed us to be born again, we are also uh, children of, of Christ, if you will. So that is what we call new birth, and that can only be done by God's Spirit. He's the only one that can, can put us in the other camp, as it were. All right? Um, so what we then say from that is that our new birth is monergistic, meaning that in order for man to be born again, God has to work alone. He doesn't, he, one, he doesn't need your cooperation, and two, it, it, it's not helpful. <laughs> right? you're, you're not going to contribute anything that is necessary. You have to be born of the Spirit. The Spirit alone can do that. And so God is working alone. You, you're, you're of, uh, and Jesus even says the flesh is no help at all. Um, so he just flatly tells us that. Um, God alone is the actor in that um, new birth. Man is acted upon. Now, there is a general call for the gospel that goes out to everyone. And we're going to do that every Sunday. We'll, we'll preach that from the pulpit. There is a general call that you'll have to maybe friends, or maybe you're given an opportunity to present the gospel to a, a massive group sometime. And you, you give the gospel to everyone. And it is resisted quite frequently. It is turned away or scoffed at or maybe not listened to. But because new birth is God working alone, and we've seen that so many times, there is a point where God's effectual call actually reaches to the heart of the sinner and pulls him to Christ. Uh, Christ says this in John 6. Uh, he tells us that uh, no one can come to the Father. No one come to me unless the Father draws him. And then he also says, everyone that the Father draws comes to me. So he, he basically spread, explains it for us very clearly there, that this is how this calling works. That calling is irresistible. The Father calls and uh, his children come. And whereas regeneration, that's that process of regeneration, that's a work of the Holy Spirit to unite the uh, elect sinner to Christ by raising him from spiritual death to life. 
Conversion, as we talked about last week, is that change that then happens on the backside of regeneration. So the Spirit regenerates, He gives new birth, the person then has a conscious awareness of salvation and their need for the gospel. This we call conversion, where the the sinner actually becomes aware, not just of the gospel, but of his need for it and of the sin that dwells within. They become convicted and they profess faith in Christ. They, um, they, They come to God, basically. This process is called conversion. Conversion and and regeneration go hand in hand. One follows right after the other. One is regenerate by the Spirit, and following right after that, we see conversion happening where they become conscious of their need for God. Now, tonight, we're going to separate these, because here's the deal. Let's just get down to brass tacks here. We are, as Millie mentioned last week, we are still in sin. And, and I, you know, with all that we teach and all that we read in Scripture, especially in places like First John, if anyone continues to sin, he is not of God. And, and you, you read those things and you go, what on earth? Because I, now I'm having a crisis of faith here because you have said, you've preached all this perfection, 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 and I'm going home going, that ain't me. You know, maybe that's some people there. I don't know, but it ain't me. And the reality is we all live in that kind of world. So understanding what we're actually dealing with here and what we should expect in our day-to-day lives is really important. And helping to separate the ideas of justification and sanctification becomes a really important process. Not just in understanding how we're saved, but then also understanding what our Christian life is actually like. And, and how, and can I even improve can I improve my, my state here? Um, or, or do I need to? And all of those questions really need to be tackled. We need to understand what is it that we expect of our daily lives. And a lot of this, we're talking about um, moving from what has taken place in eternity past and in the mind of God to now, what am I experiencing here in space and time in my life, right? Right? You can tell me all this stuff that happened before the foundation of the world and that God did in Christ before 2,000 years before I ever existed. But now in space and time, there are decisions that I make and there are things that I do. And are those things even important, right? We've got to deal with those and those are coming to bear now. So um, let's define and let's separate these two ideas, one of justification and sanctification. First, the term justify in both the Old and New Testament is a legal term. Justify is a legal term. That means to declare judicially that one is in harmony with the demands of the law. So it's a, it's a you're in a courtroom. This is a, this is a courtroom term, justification. It is a courtroom term where someone is declared uh, legally, judicially, that you are in harmony with the demands of the law. It's a declaration in a court that the demands of the law the condi- as a condition of life are fully satisfied with regard to a person. So let's see some examples of that, and you'll see this term first in the Old Testament being used, often being used by the term acquit, and then um, in the New Testament also being used. 
Keep far from false charges. This is Exodus 23.7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked. This is a, le- a legal term. This is, he's speaking there in the negative, obviously, but you get the idea it's used in that sense. Deuteronomy 25.1. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judge, judges decide between them acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. So here it's represented again as a, as a legal term. Uh, let's look at Acts, just a couple down, Acts 13, 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That free, the word freed there is represented. Um, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that there the legal term is actually being applied to the relationship now that we have with Christ. Um, Romans 5, 9. Um, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by, from Him by the wrath of God. So therefore we're, we're uh, freed from the penalty of of the law that would then come as a result of sin. Romans 8, 30-33. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Uh, what shall we say to these things? Uh, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him uh, up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So there are charges being brought against his children, but the justification nullifies those charges being brought, right? Because they are quitted in a court of law. It is a legal term that happens um, and and where God actually uh, justifies um, people. Okay, so justification, therefore, is a judicial act of God in which he declares on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that all the claims of the law are satisfied with respect to the sinner. All the claims of the law are satisfied with respect to the sinner. Now, if we understand justification this way, it becomes really difficult for you to contribute to your own justification, doesn't it? Because if if the terms of the law are laid out in front of you, and as we read the Old Testament... How much of the law is actually satisfied by the people that, that operate on the pages of the Old Testament? None. They, they can't seem to do any of it. So if the requirement for your justification is that the law actually be satisfied, it be fulfilled, well then nobody can do that. And so you, it's difficult to make an argument for your own justification if that, that aspect of the law still has to be fulfilled. And even today, we would still say today, we have the Spirit dwelling within us, and yet, we, can't sti- we still can't fulfill the law. Jesus comes in in the New Testament, He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, don't lust after anyone. If anyone lusts after a woman, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. Anybody lining up to say they fulfilled that one? Not many. Murder? You've heard it said, don't murder. I, I'm saying to you, anyone who's angry with his brother has committed murder against him in his heart. Anybody lining up to say they fulfilled that one? Of course not. So Jesus is, is saying, look, even the Old Testament law is training wheels. 
It's but the hem of the garment of what righteousness actually is and what it really looks like to fulfill the law. You mean you want to obey the law that's given to you in the Old Testament? Okay, fine. You're not even going to be able to do that. But if you want to know what righteousness really looks like, here it is. And then he says to them, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. In other words, what's taught in the Old Testament is insufficient to actually reach the righteousness of God, even. So even still now, we don't meet the demands of the law. We can't. And so our justification has to rest only in Christ. It can't rest in anything else. It has to be done by Him. So let's, let's talk just in these three bullet points here, just briefly, what justification actually does. So um, justification removes, first, the guilt of sin. Justification removes the guilt of sin and restores the sinner to his state as a child of God, including an eternal inheritance. Um, I'm going to go through these, and then I'll come back and, and address them. Justification takes place outside of the sinner, in the tribunal, that's like the courtroom of God, and does not change his inner life. We're not talking about something that is an inward change, We're talking about something that happens outside the center. Again, this is a a legal operation that has taken place where God declares someone um, just. Justification takes place once for all. It is not repeated. It is not repeated. Neither is it a process. It is complete at once and for all time. You were created in the image of God. Yes? As a human, you're created in the image of God. The image has been marred by sin, sure. In other words, if, if you were the vice regent, you were the one representing God, when, it, when a vice regent goes abroad to a country abroad and meets with a foreign dignitary and goes to their palace or whatever, Everything they say and do represents the king or whomever that sent them, whoever they're the vice regent for, right? So as God's vice regent, with sin, you can't really represent God, right? So now, through Christ, the image has been restored in that you actually have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, so now, you are, to re- you are given the privilege, the authority, of representing Christ, but the only way you could actually do that is by having the Spirit of God within you. Because the Old Testament people had, had tried and failed time and again, and sin after sin after sin. But now in the New Testament, that image has been restored. So what had to happen is the guilt of sin had to be, res- be removed, and you had to be restored as a child of God, someone in the image of God. So now, you are actually made into the image of Christ. That's what the, the New Testament is, is saying when it uses that phrase, being conformed into the image of Christ, as Paul will say in Romans 8. The reason you're conformed into the image of Christ is because now you act as His representative, having His Spirit dwelling within you. But it's a process now. You're, you're being conformed to it. You're growing into it progressively. 
But the, the process of actually being justified and having the guilt of sin removed is a justification, a once and for all thing that had to happen initially in order to start the whole process of you being uh, conformed into His image. Does that make sense? Tracking with what I'm saying here? Okay. I'm seeing some nods. That's good. The justification is not a process. Me being conformed into the image of Christ is a process, and we're going to talk about that one in a second. But the justification step is a, is a once and for all happening. The guilt of sin had to be removed. There's no, uh, there's no being conformed into the image of Christ with, without the guilt of sin being removed. Say again? Yes, sanctification, which what we're going to address here in just a minute, is the, con- is the continual, the progressive part. The justification is the one-time legal operation. That's, that's the regeneration. That's, that's, that's done. Yes. Now we, we move to our work. Yes, yes. Well, we will in just a minute, but yes. <laughs> Not quite. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Yeah, because, so let's, let's deal with what the Bible actually says on it, because I think it's helpful. Um, so justification lies completely on the merits of Christ through two things. First, his passive obedience and his active obedience. First, his passive. Second, his active obedience. Um, passively, our sin was imputed to Him. I'm going to explain this in just a second, but I want to read through it first. Passively, our sin was imputed to Him, and thus He paid the penalty for them. Actively, He satisfied the legal demands of the law for us, and His righteousness was imputed to us. Okay, so in order for... um, our justification to actually take place, Christ had to give, had to satisfy the demands of the law. Okay? So, two things were required for that. First, he had to actively do things that were required. God required things of his people. You must do this, or you must not do this. Jesus had to do those things and the things that were prohibited, not do those things, right? He had to actively walk through all of the paths that the children of Israel were required to walk and do those perfectly, right? He couldn't just show up on the scene as a baby and then be put up on the cross quickly before he ever has a chance to make a decision. Because, okay, he's not born of Adam, all right, he's born, you know, Mary and the Holy Spirit, okay, then put him up on the cross quick before he has a chance to make a decision. That, that can't happen. He has to actively fulfill the demands of the law. This is why in um, so, so much of Matthew, like if you read through Matthew, and we, we dealt with this a good bit when we were going through the book, if you read through Matthew, Matthew will make statements sometimes where it, he says, and it's very weird, but he says, this was to fulfill what was written in the prophet, blah, 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 and then he'll quote the prophet. And when you read that, you go, well, that prophet wasn't talking about Jesus. Go back to Hosea 11, 11. Oh, Hosea 11, 1, sorry. Hosea 11, 1 is where Jesus, he, he, Matthew's talking about Jesus uh, and, and Mary and Joseph running to Egypt because uh, Herod is going to kill him, 
He's looking for all the babies, right? They run to Egypt, and then later he comes out of Egypt. The, the angel tells Joseph, it's, it's safe now, you can go back. And so he comes out of Egypt. And Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was written in the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. So Hosea 11.1. 1. And when you go back to Hosea 11.1, 1, he's talking about Israel, and he's talking about Moses leading them out of, out of Egypt. And in no way do we look at Hosea, or would you read Hosea, if you didn't have the New Testament, you wouldn't look at Hosea 11.1 1 and go, well, yeah, that's talking about Jesus, clearly. No, you wouldn't. You would say, no, that's talking about the children of Israel. They were called out of Egypt. But the, what Matthew is showing you is that Jesus is actually walking through all of the things that happened to Israel to actually do faithfully what they failed to do. He's actively obeying. So what do you see in Matthew? Is a great example. Matthew's gospel is a great example of this. What do you see happen in the gospel of Matthew when he does that? Out of Egypt I called my son. He comes out of Egypt, and where does he go? He goes in through the waters of baptism. He's in the waters of baptism, and he goes up to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says, wait a minute, I'm baptizing you? You should be baptizing me. And what, do you remember what Jesus says to him? Help me. Do you anybody? Yeah, it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness, right? Israel is right at that moment being required by God to be baptized. So Jesus is going to be baptized. Israel walked through the waters of coming out of, out of Egypt. Jesus is going to go through the waters too. But where does he go right after that? He goes out into the wilderness, doesn't he? He goes out into the wilderness. Do you know how long? 40 days, right? You know what happens to him when he's out there for 40 days? He's tempted at the end of those 40 days. What, does he succumb to the temptation? No. You know, Israel wouldn't have been out in the desert for 40 years had they not succumbed to the temptation. Jesus fulfills it perfectly. What does he do after that? He goes into the promised land, climbs up on a mountain with the law of Moses, and then talks about fulfilling righteousness through the law. Then he proceeds to conquer the Holy Land, the Promised Land, with the gospel message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus, and Matthew's showing all of the Jews who are reading this, Jesus is walking through all of the things you did, but he's not failing when he does it. He's doing it righteously. It's required for him to actively obey all of the things that are there. But when he starts talking about the law, as I just mentioned a minute ago, when he starts talking about the law, he's not talking about fulfilling simply the law of Moses. He says, no, no, no. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. I have not come to abolish the law, he says, but to fulfill the law. Meaning, I'm not wanting to disregard the law of Moses. I'm actually wanting to do what's really required. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm saying don't lust. You've heard it said, don't murder, but I'm saying don't even get angry. Jesus is not just going to fulfill the law of Moses. He's going to fulfill the law, meaning to fill it up. He's going to give it its fullest meaning. And how is he going to do that? He's not going to get angry with someone in his heart. He's not going to lust after another, uh, after another person. 
right? So, like, so he's, he's actually accomplishing the righteousness that we could never do. Not only that, but then he has to passively uh, fulfill the law. And his passive obedience is him on the cross taking the wrath of God for us. He has to actually be punished. He has to actually suffer the wrath of God for us. We did not obey the law. He has to actively do that. So passively, our sin is imputed to Him. And He suffers the penalty for them. Actively, He fulfilled the legal demands. So now what happens on the cross is a switch. A switcheroo. Where God takes the righteousness of Christ and allows it to represent us. And takes our sin and allows it to represent Christ. And there punishes him for our sin and allows us to go free. See what I'm saying? Yeah? Makes sense? Alright, so how much of that did you have to do with? You, d- you didn't. And, and it, so it, it's, a, it's a, a flawed argument from the beginning to say that all this is hinging around a some choice that I made. I, didn't, I can't choose my own justification. I can't do that. That has to actually happen in the courtroom of God, and I'm not privy to that conversation. Right? Now, I'm not going to let myself off the hook that easy. Okay, we're going to get to some harder stuff. Hold on. So, that being said, according to the plain teaching of the Bible, we're justified by faith. Uh-oh. I've just kind of backed myself into a corner now. Uh, Romans 3.28 For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4.5 And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There you go, justified. Romans 10.10 For with the heart one believes and is justified. He confesses with the mouth and one saved. Galatians 3.8, in the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Romans 3.30, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. 3.24, and justified by His grace as a gift through redemption of Jesus Christ. So th- th- we're, it teaches over and over, time and again, we are, are justified by faith. So then, that seems to indicate, well, now I, do, I, I have something to do with that, right? I, I believe. Um, however, the Bible also says explicitly that God justifies the sinner by grace through faith and therefore represents faith as God's instrument. Okay, so God is the first blank and God's instrument is the second blank. Um, we don't think of faith this way. Uh, we think of faith, I think, as being convinced. I think that that's the way we use it and the way we, we often think about it. Um, the more convinced I am, the more faith I have. So, if I am, if I am, I need my faith to increase, I need my faith to, I, I need to grow more convinced, and the more sure I am, the more faith I have. 
And so we think about this in, in terms of this is the way the prosperity gospel teachers will use faith. They'll say, well, you didn't have enough faith. In other words, you weren't convinced enough that God was going to do this, and therefore it didn't happen. And that's the way we often think about faith. Now, the disciples are bringing Jesus' this question too. Increase our faith, they say. And he says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed. So there, there, are, there, there is an aspect of faith that is a, a belief, uh, 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 being convinced, right? That Jesus is true, that God is right, that he's going to do these things. But that presence of faith in a person who is a rebel in, to God, the very presence of faith is a gift that God gives. Understand? It's not something that I can, you know, screw up my face and, you know, dig down deep and clench really hard and have more of. It's a gift that God gives. The very presence of faith in the heart of one who is degenerate is a divine miracle. That faith should not be there. But the very fact that it is present is evidence of the Holy Spirit being there. Do you understand? That, that's what the Bible is saying about faith. It's, it's a gift. It's, it's, uh, it's God's instrument. So he justifies. Look at, at Galatians 3.8. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. God would justify the Gentiles by faith. The Gentiles didn't justify themselves by faith. They didn't have the faith and were justified. God justified them by faith. Um, Romans 3.30, Since God alone is, God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith. Um, let's see. Uh, and are justified, Romans 3.24, And are justified by His grace as a gift. So, some people will go through Romans and they will read where Paul says, you know, we're, we're not justified by works. We're justified by faith. And they will carve out this exemption for faith. And they'll say, see, therefore, faith somehow is not a work. That doesn't make any sense. If I were to tell you, believe. Your yard is on fire. Believe. Wouldn't it be a work to say, Okay, I believe that. In other words, that's something you do. It may not be hard work. You may see the smoke, but it's something you do. It's a response to me saying, your backyard's on fire. It is a response. It's a physical response for you to say, okay, I believe that. I see the smoke and all that. I believe. That is a work done by you. So it doesn't make sense to carve out faith as though, well, in this one instance, when you, when you have faith in Jesus, when you believe in Jesus, that's the one time, is a one-time exemption, this is not considered a work. No. That would still be a work. It's still a work. The reason that you're justified by faith and not by works, and that faith isn't considered a work, is because it's a gift. It's given to you freely. That's why. Because it was put into you by the Holy Spirit. And when you believe in time and space, when you say, I believe, 
when that faith is given to you, those eyes are opened in regeneration, and you profess faith in Christ, you are justified. So we've talked about there is a moment in space and time in the past when God sent Christ to the earth. He died on the cross and suffered God's wrath and imputed His righteousness to you that took place before you were ever born. You had nothing to do with that God saved you. He declared you saved there on the cross. And in one sense, you were saved before you were ever born. You were justified before you were ever born. But it's also true to say, not only was I saved, but I am currently being saved. Now, and the way I am being saved began when I said, I believe. But we're not denying that something happened before that that brought about the belief. Dead men don't profess faith in Christ. And the Bible depicts you as being dead in your trespasses and sins. You can't reach out and take a life preserver. You can't swim up to the top. You can't do all of those analogies that people use for salvation. You can't do it because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. The only way that that could ever happen is if God takes the scalpel of faith and begins to operate on you. Or the paddles of faith, as it were, and clear and brings you to life. So faith is the instrument that He is using, that He implants in you. The way we talk about it is it's entirely generated within us. It's something that I can muster. We feel that way, don't we? We feel like it's sitting right here in our chest. But the Bible's telling you it is sitting right there in your chest. But God put it there. You wouldn't have it if it weren't for Him. So it's so we, we take the whole Scripture into account. We can't just say, well, I'm, I'm justified by faith apart from work, so therefore, I've got it. Okay? Well, it seems like some Scriptures kind of point to that. But we have to take all of Scripture where it says God justifies. We have to go, wait a minute, how do those two things work together? Do I justify or does God justify? And the answer is, He actually puts the faith in there to begin with. The uncircumcised being Gentiles, those who don't have the law at all. Uh, circumcised, it, he's justifying the circumcised by faith, uncircumcised through faith. Same, effectively the same difference. By coming to believe. Coming to believe in Jesus by fulfilling the law uh, for the Gentiles, coming to believe in God altogether without anything else. Is that what you're asking? The difference between by and through? Yeah. Uh, effectively the same difference. I mean, I'm sure we could parse it if we spent a lot of time in Romans 3, but effectively the same, same difference. Um, all right. So in justification, God's verdict of not guilty registers with the sinner at the point of conversion. So um, what I mean to say there is I, I don't necessarily want to... I, I want us to have all these terms. I don't want us to just build a bunch of synonyms, right? So basically what you're saying is conversion and justification and it is the same thing. And I don't want to do that. I want us to understand justification. I want us to understand conversion. And I want us to see that they're, they're really all talking about different parts of this process. So justification is something that happens in the courtroom of God. 
It happens uh, with the sinner at the point of conversion and awakens in him the joy of forgiveness of sins and favor with God. However, this consciousness of reconciliation with God is often disturbed by sin. Here we go, Millie. We're getting to your, your answer, okay? He is then strengthened by confession, prayer, and a renewed exercise of faith. Confession, prayer, faith. Confession, prayer, faith. So, God gives the verdict of not guilty. It registers at the point of conversion that I'm forgiven of sin by Christ. But, you have this this understanding of your reconciliation. I've been made right with God. But then, I come back home and engage in some of the same practices that I engaged in before I was saved. And so there's this disturbing nature to the flesh that I'm still living in that says, wait a minute, have you really been reconciled with God? Yes, I've been reconciled with God. Have you really been reconciled with God? And you're constantly going back and forth between this question, right? But what happens then is that understanding, that consciousness of your reconciliation with God is then strengthened Every time you come to the Lord in confession of sin and prayer, and you have this renewed exercise of faith. So your faith that God planted there is now being worked out. Actually, through that sin that you engage in. Right? Okay? I'm not giving you an excuse to sin, a license, I'm just saying. But it's being worked out, right? You're being pumped up by that continual process of confession. You're you're resting on that reconciliation that you have with God. It's causing you to rest on Jesus all the more because you're saying, look, I go home and I participate in this. It's yet more evidence of the reason why I needed this to begin with and why I couldn't justify myself. All right, so that leads us into sanctification. Unlike justification, which is a one-time act, sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Sanctification, uh, Christ, see that next blank, in our actual life. Sanctification continues throughout the Christian life. This is that becoming more in the image of Christ. We're being made more in the image of Christ, ironically, by learning to depend on His sacrifice of reconciliation all the more. So as I sin, I'm realizing I'm not like Christ, causing me to fall back and lean more on Christ, which is then actually making me more like Christ. <laughs> yeah, so, so the Bible's going to present it as a both and, as God and man working together. Here's the reality, that prior to justification... You don't have the Spirit of God in you. So, the only thing that you can do is sin. This is precisely why Paul says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Remember, faith is something he plants in there. Without him planting that in there, it is impossible for you to please God. All right? So, now with faith, it is possible for me to please God. So now I have the possibility of sin, because I'm still carrying around the body of flesh, and I have the possibility of pleasing God all at the same time. You have a privilege that those outside of Christ do not have. 
all they can do is sin. Even in their good deeds and they're taking all their clothes to goodwill and donating their used tricycles, all of that is great. They should do that. And it's God's common grace, but it is, it is not pleasing to God. Right, right, yeah. So, um, so, where was I? So, the sanctification is a progressive work where we're conformed into the image of Christ. So, in the, in the Old and New Testament, the word sanctify carries the idea of setting apart. Setting apart. It is used to denote the operation of God by which He, especially through His Spirit, works in man the subjective quality of holiness. So John 17, 17. Sanctify them. He's praying to God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Acts 20, 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's that word that's going to build them up. 26.18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So there is a, a setting apart. He's defining a group that is set apart, that is different, that is sanctified in Christ Jesus. Um, now, sanctification is there, therefore is a moral or recreative work of God changing the inner nature of man. So he's working throughout your life of changing your nature. It's a supernatural and gracious work of the Holy Spirit primarily through the Word, secondarily through the ordinary means of grace. So the first blank is the Word. The next blanks are ordinary means of grace. By which He delivers us more and more from the power of sin and enables us to do good works. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is there giving the sanctification. Now may the God of peace, who brought, you, brought, uh, again, uh, who brought again from the dead our Lord, Jesus, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good, uh, everything good that you may do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. So there's a, you see the nature of the relationship there. That God is working in you, and then you're doing it. Right? There is, a, there is a, a, uh, an aspect that's performed afterwards. Look at Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. But I have 2.12 on there somewhere, I think. 2.12 on the very back page. The verse that comes just before that, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he tells you on the front end, do it. 
He exhorts you, work it out. And then on the back end says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this is the relationship that's happening now on the backside of conversion where God is actually working in you to perform good deeds to actually work, to do good things that please him. And you're required to do them. But you're enabled by the Holy Spirit now dwelling within you, you understand. So, um, yes, <laughs> yeah, we're not cooking the noodle just yet, all right? So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so those, <laughs> those sanctification is a work of God's Spirit within us. The Bible also commands Christians to participate in the sanctification process by putting sin to death and actively striving toward holy living. So all of these patterns, well, you're familiar with these. I mean, you, I've got some here, but there's a billion more that we could have put down that are exhorting you, believer, toward obedience. Do these things, right? It is commanding you to obey. And the reason there's a command to obey is, yes, it is God who's working in us and who is sanctifying us and who is assuring us of the sanctification process, but the Bible is also going to tell you, participate in that by putting sin to death and actively striving toward holy living. So believers, this next blank, believers must contend with sin as long as we live in a fallen world with two competing natures, the new man versus the old. Look, look at this. this is, hopefully these will encourage some of you. Maybe, maybe all of you, and I hope it will encourage all of you. 1 Kings, there it is. It's on the very back. 1 Kings uh, 8.46 If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, thank you, Lord, for that little insertion that he felt like, I'm sure at the time he was writing, he just felt like this is a throwaway line, and then just kept going, you know, <laughs> and everybody's like, amen, somebody. All right. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does, not, who does good and never sins. James 3.2, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body, which James is going to say that ain't possible. 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Um, so, in other words, there, there's... The Bible is telling you, look, we're going to contend. Your entire life is going to be one of contention with a body of sin. And the reason there is contention, the reason you're not just doing it and giving yourself over to it, is precisely because of the faith that he put in there, the regeneration that he worked, the, the justification that, that happened. All those things that he's done are the reason that you now contend with sin. You understand, there's a whole host of people that have no problem with sin. Just turn on the TV. You can see, very plainly, there's a whole host of people that have no problem with sin. Contend with sin? They can't imagine why you would ever contend with sin. That doesn't make sense. The very fact that you contend with sin is evidence that there's some embers of faith, they may be very small, but that are in there. But he put those there. 
We grow in sanctification by the ordinary means of grace, such as His Word, that is, preaching, teaching, reading, prayer, the ordinances, that is, the Lord's Supper and baptism. These fortify our faith. We should also say about that church membership. There's a whole host of ordinary means of grace that are tremendously important for you and that progress you in sanctification. We call them ordinary means of grace because they are common to Christians. They're ordinary. They're given to everybody. These aren't like special dispensations of grace that some people get and some don't. You're given, you have a Bible in your lap. The Bible commands you to pray. Gives it to you. Here, pray. Church membership, being united with brothers and sisters, singing. You realize this? There's a reason why we do an a cappella verse almost every song. And the reason is there's a, there's a, there was an, a, a, a common uh, a moniker that, or I don't know, that moniker is not the right word, phrase that was used. If you want people to sing loud, you've got to play loud. That was, that was the, the common thing that was being said for a long time. And it's said in various ways, but like that. The reality is, you can't tell if people are singing loud if you're playing loud. <laughs> so, period. But second, the Bible commands us in Colossians, we're to lift each other up. That the singing is not only praise to God, that is what it is, it's not only praise to God, but it is actually building one another up with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. So there is a process in our singing where you are encouraged by other people singing. When the instruments drop out completely and everyone in the congregation is singing holy, 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 how can you not be encouraged by that? Even if maybe you can't sing it. Maybe you have gone through maybe a whole host of things and there's a song maybe that hits you really hard and you just, you're having a really difficult time singing that song. How can you, your faith not be encouraged and bolstered by people around you belting it out off key? Right? And some of them on key. Certainly not me, but, but some of them are on key. And that's, and that's fantastic. You know, so... All of these things that we do, church membership being held accountable, if I run off into sin and a whole host of church members are going to come after me and go, wait, 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 come on back, come on back. That is sanctifying me. That is a sanctifying work. So as a church body, what we're actually doing together is helping to sanctify one another. That's essentially our whole, the, the reason we exist is yes to worship God, making and maturing disciples for the glory of God. That's The making and maturing disciples is the increasing of sanctification. So all of the things that we do, whatever is on our calendar, should be there to increase the sanctification of one another. You understand? You can't just start throwing things on a, on a church calendar without giving thought to what it is, that they, what reason they're actually there. There's things that we turn down and we say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do these things instead. And people go, why would you do those things? Church down the street does those things. Because we have to run these things through a filter. And that filter is, 
is, how are we targeting sanctification with this process, this thing that we're doing? I don't want to just do things that we, just because another church does them, may do them quite successfully and very well. I, I want to do them because they increase the sanctification within the church. This is going to lead to all of our sanctification. Because in the end, and I've said this a number of times, in the end, we want to make it. Yeah? That's what we're trying to do. We're just, we want to cross the finish line. And sometimes that means we got we to gotta put our arm around somebody else and let them drag us for a little while. Sometimes we got to drag them for a little while. But the point is we all want to just get there across the finish line. So Paul tells the congregations that he's teaching and he's preaching, he's writing to, I want to present you blameless in the day of Christ. I want to be able to say, yes, I worked hard for their sanctification. Because all of these tools are built there for your growth. You're going to contend with sin. For the rest of your life, we all are. None of us are ever going to be perfect. Not in this life anyway. But, but the process is growing in our sanctification. Questions? I want to know how many people at this point in time sit and go, In Egypt? How did they come to... Uh, you, mean, you, mean, you mean the Hebrews in, when they were in slavery in Egypt? No, before. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> make sure I understand the question right. How did the Egyptians or how did the Hebrew people... Okay. Um, so Abraham... Let's go back to Abraham. It's pretty far. Okay. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, so, Abraham is professing a belief in God. We've talked about how that belief got there, but, but Abraham is professing a belief in God. And that righteousness is credited to him based on his faith that God was going to accomplish the promises that he ended up accomplishing in Christ. So Abraham, you might say, is looking forward to Christ while we're looking back. So when a New Testament person comes to faith in Christ, we're looking backwards at Christ. And Abraham is looking forward at Christ and trusting that that's going to happen, that's gonna, that God is going to save us. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how... That, that yeah. So but here, here's the thing, Millie. I, I think that there's a lot of people that are in churches that will say, okay... I don't know if I'm saved. And, and I, I don't think that's inherently a bad question to ask, right? But part of the reason church membership is very important is because in church membership, a group of people read your testimony. They know you, and they look at your life, and they go, okay, we know Millie, we know some things that go on. We know there's this and we know there's that. And here's what we see. Here's what we read in her confession. This is what she believes. And they're saying about you when they say, yes, we accept you in the membership. 
They're not creating Christians there. They're validating Christians. We're not making the passport. They're the, the gate agent that's stamping the passport. This looks to be an authentic passport. And they're stamping it. That's why we get together and vote. When we read that testimony, there's a reason we do that. And I've done this before. We, we rate, we'll have you fill out a testimony and what you believe about the gospel and all that. And you'll sit down with me and we'll talk. And we did that four or five years ago. And then I'll come forward. And when we did this, when we first started doing this, there were a lot of people that were like, wait a second. I don't want to know all this information, right? But you have to understand what we're doing. We're affirming that what we see on the paper is, I think, a genuine Christian. So your church membership in the body is an one piece of authentication that you can cling to in those moments where you think, maybe I'm not a Christian. But wait a second, there is a room full of people at Emmanuel Baptist Church that said that I am, and they think I am. So that has to mean something. That has to give me some sort of assurance, especially in those darkest moments when I'm, when I'm struggling over sin and I'm going, I don't know what to do about this. So then, what do you do? Well, you lean hard on that church membership. So instead of just going home and suffering in this cocoon of sin and going, I, I don't like this, and maybe this means that I'm not saved, instead you go back to that church membership, particularly those that you're closest to, and you say, you got to help me here because I'm really struggling in these areas. Here are the things I do or think or say or whatever, and that just are convincing me that I'm not a believer. And you lean hard on that church membership. And the church members who said, we think you are a Christian, are identifying somebody who is contending with sin. Not someone who's given into it completely, but who says, I'm sick of this, and I want to get out of it. So that's a contention, right? And so they say, well, she's contending with sin, so I want to help her. And here's what we're going to do. And so they begin to walk with you, and that's called discipleship, right? So, so many people are in the churches today, and they've never been discipled. They've never, been, never, never had anybody that came along and said, this is how you be a Christian. And what then happens as a result of that is they just kind of flounder around in sin, and, and they, they don't know what to do, and they just sort of get trapped in darkness, and then all of a sudden they grow convinced that they're not Christians, and then they just kind of fall by the wayside. And maybe they weren't, okay? But maybe what they thought was their initial conversion may have just been an extreme interest, and they needed somebody there to come along and say, here's how you grow in faith, or perhaps here's how you, get, how you have faith to begin with, right? Here's what it actually is, and, and explain it more thoroughly. Um, does that make sense? So it, you, gotta, you have to lean hard on the church members. And you've made relationships in this church. You've built friendships in this church. And, and you need to go to them. And, and, or, I mean, obviously me too, but you, you, you need to go to them and you need to lean on the body to do the work of ministry. That is what it is. James.
Yeah. 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 There's a lot of there's a lot of people who've been conscripted into the military and or, or maybe they volunteered for the military and just never gone through basic training. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Well, let's let's pray. We got to get out of here. Heavenly Father, we're we're grateful to be here uh tonight and and um Lord, I pray that as we think th- some of these things are really deep and very very challenging to think through. Um even just the complexity of the sentences that are on the page are hard. And we pray that you give us understanding, that you help us to make sense of what we're doing here as a church, uh, perhaps even making sense of things we do and things we don't do, the reason why we do things we do. Um, so I pray that you would, you would help us there and strengthen the, us. And as, as we doubt, your word tells us that some will doubt and that we are to be patient with those that doubt. And uh, I'm grateful for that because I know that's me from time to time. And, and I know that's many of us in this room from time to time. And so I pray that you would strengthen uh, what's left in our body, uh, not only our church body, but also our mortal bodies, that you would strengthen us, that you would equip us, that you would grow us, that you would sanctify us in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.